Today's reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 12. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 12. <clears throat> finally, finally then, brothers, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were to do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you gain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of, passion of the little Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, therefore whoever regards this disregards not man but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the, all the brothers of Donia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you walk for outsiders, and be, and be dependent on no one. No one. Word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see you all on this lovely summer day. I'm sure you're feeling already the effects of uh, summer in a, in the Grace Baptist Church sanctuary. It can get uh, a little bit warm, to say the, least, to say the least, but we'll just rely on the Holy Spirit to give us strength and attention as we consider the Word of God. It's a great privilege to be able to preach God's word to a congregation full of people that people that are starving for it, folks that, that love it and love it as their very life. Very life. So I, uh, it's really the joy of my life to be able to, to do that and to learn to learn with you and to grow. Come um, to a, a really interesting and important and, and uh, uncomfortable portion of scripture. And believe that all of God's word, God's word is out and inspired and pro profitable for us to train us, to equip us, to uh, work holiness in us and uh, to equip us and ready us for every good work. If you've uh, accidentally, accidentally closed the I'd ask you to, to turn them once again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll verse 12 verses today. Uh, in the month before he passed, one of our favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, published a blog post on, on the Ligonier website. And in that blog post, he was responding to a, a question a friend had recently asked him. Uh, his, the question that this, this friend asked Sproul was this, what's the big idea of the Christian life? What's... This is... It's always interesting, isn't it? When a person is nearing the end of their days, a... a stalwart of the faith you want to know like out of all of the things that you've learned and known could you boil down the essence of the christian life for me what's the big idea big idea and this course was looking for you know an overarching all-encompassing aim for our existence i don't know how you would have answered that question uh, but sprawl ever ever the origin, he respond, responded with a latin in that latin in that latin term Corum Deo. Corum Deo. Corum Deo, Sproul said, captures the S of the Christian life. 
literally the, the phrase means before the face of God. And it me- means, Sproul's words, it's to live one's entire life in the presence of God, presence of God under the, the authority of God, to the glory of God. And as I've been studying the, the Thessalonian epistles here, I've, I've noticed this concept emerge quite frequently, quite regu- regularly. The, the, this, those same words kind of permeate all throughout, throughout these just just skim through with me, if you will. And, no, and notice this this will uh, be kind of a key word for you to zero in on. The word before. That's indicating that same concept of cor- quorum day. So before, as in before our God and Father, that's chapter 1, verse 3. Before our Lord Jesus, chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 9, and then again in 13, we read, Before our God. And then uh, we haven't got there yet, but if you, if you look forward into, into chapter 5, verse 7, uh, we read, Before the Lord. And that, that's the construction of Coram Deo. You get the sense that this is how Paul and the apostles are living their lives. Like the apostle Paul would agree with, with Sproul that the Christian life is to be lived, be lived from Deo. This, over, this overarching concept would be incredibly important, I think, as we move into this, this next portion of Paul's letter, his letter to the Thessalonians. And believe it or not, the whole section that we've looked at so, so far, the first three chapters, really just one big, big section. It's an, it's an introduction, a thanksgiving, and a, a prayer report. And uh, that's what Paul's been um, preoccupied with for the first three chapters. And it's been wonderful. We've learned, we've learned a lot. Paul doesn't just waste these sections out of formality, but he, he knows he packs with all kinds of good truth. But finally, in chapter 4, four getting into the, the main body of the letter, this section is much more, I might say, directly didactic which means that Paul is going to give, give some, some very direct instructions to the people. With, with apostolic authority, Paul is going to ask and command and urge certain things on these Thessalonian believers. He's going to give them specific instructions, or rather, he's going to reiterate instructions that he's already given to them. He gave these these same instructions, it seems, um, on his first visit when this church was planted. In other words, right from the very beginning. But these are instructions that they need to be reminded of. Instruction. So that word that you see in verse 2, for example, is is perhaps too mild of a translation. You know, the original is used mainly in a military context where you're receiving uh, orders down the chain of command. Many of you have served in some of uh, uh, branch armed forces and, and you know what, what this is like to receive orders order, uh, depending on your position to, to pass them down. Coming to you from a uh, commanding officer, someone that ranks in seniority higher than you do. And when these instructions come, the only proper response is to say, say, sir, 
and to execute those orders on the double. So what we're dealing with in our passage today has to do with our, mar our march, are not just guidelines or, you know, light instructions for a better li life. No, these are instructions, commands for our Christian walk. It has to do with our conduct. Or, or if you prefer, we're talking today about Christian ethics. Christian ethics. And that, that, that term kind of highlights the, well, it makes sense of the, the word ought that's found in the text here. You received from us how you ought walk. And that, that oughtness in Paul's language, language refers to like an ethical imperative. So we're talking about Christian ethics. This is how we ought to walk and conduct ourselves in the Christian life. And maybe some of you, some of you let me just throw this out here right off the, right off the bat. Maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, thinking to yourself that sounds more like the essence of Christianity. When when you think, or when the world thinks about what about what Christianity, uh, that that's immediately what comes to mind. These rules. You, you you might know who this sprawl guy is, and and you don't know that, but it's far, but it's far to discern the big idea in the Christian life seems to be all the commandments, the rules, the list of do's and don'ts, the, the, the shalts and the shalt nots. Maybe, maybe you even believe that these rules are designed to cramp your style, to, to kill your joy, to restrict your life. Maybe you, maybe you believe, and I don't know if you say this out loud or not, but maybe you believe in your heart, heart of heart that the aim, the overarching essence of the Christian life is for the Christian to have no life. Well, I'm happy to tell you that that is not the case. And I hope you'll listen carefully to the word of God if you're in that boat, if you're thinking that way, so that you can discover that exactly the opposite is true. Exactly the opposite to what your, your pre, you know, what, you know what, what your assumptions in life are the exact opposite is true. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. Christianity is all about truly living and living eternally. And tempted to think that Christianity is all about restrict rules, then what you desperately need today is a, is a paradigm shift. This paradigm shift on for size. Coram Deo. Coram Deo. A life lived in the presence of God, authority of God, for, for the glory of God. And, and just see, I hope you can track with me today, and just see how that transforms not just your mindset, but your, your conduct. And, and I'm, not, I'm not just talking to um, unbelievers today who don't have a right concept. I, it's very, very apparent to me, from my experience, uh, just as a Christ, as a Christian church for a long time, but also as a pastor for a number of years, it's it's very apparent to me that Christians also adopt this mindset that Christ Christianity is all about the rules, and we want to make sure that we're checking off 
the, the rules. Also making sure that other people are following the, the, the rules. It's very, very easy to become pharisaical, even as you mature more in Christ, paradoxically. And so all of us, I think, stand in need of this paradigm shift. And the one I'm suggesting to you, the one that the Apostle Paul is, Paul is suggesting to you, is Coram Deo. So let's adopt that paradigm as Coram Deo as we look at this passage, passage on main headings. Look uh, for conduct examined, conduct examined, and then in the second place, uh, we'll see that con conduct is encouraged and exhorted. So first, conduct examined. Secondly, conduct encouraged and exhorted. And I and I feel um, like I ought to, to tell you that that very first heading is going to take the the big bulk of our time together. And the second point, hopefully, will be just a very brief encouragement at the end. So I, I warn you about that just so that you're not panicking. Uh, okay. This, this first take the longest, and it'll have six sub-points. Here I am spoiling you, preparing you very well for uh, note-taking, if you got these down and uh, meditate on them afterwards. Conduct examine. And one of the functions of this passage is to examine our conduct. To have, to have us examine our own conduct in the light of certain truths. And on one level, as I've suggested a minute ago, we're quite used to having our conduct examined. You know, th this is everywhere, all the time. This happens at school. And this week, a multitude of kids are rejoicing and chanting that, that little ditty about no more pencils and no more books. But, but the, the best part is no more teacher dirty looks. Tired of having con conduct examined until you realize that, yeah, you're out of school, but you're, but you're back in greater proximity to your, to your parent who are even more interested in examining conduct than your teacher ever dreamed about being. Well, we're always sizing people, sizing people, watching them intently to see whether conforming to the proper customs and conduct. I, I hope I can, I hope you'll agree with me and that I'm not just exposing myself up here. But that's how I know, know that we, because I do this all the time. I did it yesterday. My my family and I hear the Finger Lake Symphony Orchestra at, in the Pines at the coming at the coming Na in Naples yesterday, and I'm embarrassed to admit that in a con context that I do a lot of examining. You know, are people dressed restably for the occasion, or are they, you know, coming still wearing their pajama, pajama box, which is quite common in these parts. I I think you'll. Realize? Are they talking during the performance and milling about? Are they clapping at the appropriate times? I'm, I'm watching everyone and, and judging them, just like everyone is watching and judging me. And this was certainly going on in Thessalonica in the first century. And like, like any culture, 
That city had its own codes of acceptable conduct. You know, most notably, were there idea, ideas what constituted acceptable, acceptable conduct came to basic, basic behaviors like, like work and like set. We'll look at the work part under our second head heading. Here we just need, here, here we're going to examine what Paul focuses on first, which, which, which ate something of the, the importance of the, this for the Thessalonians. It, 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 the, the rather strong impression that this was a, a big deal. This, this is something that they needed to be reminded of given their context. And so Paul's going to focus on these sexual ethics first. And there's no dispute, disputing the, that Thessalonica, along with other commercial centers in the Greco, were notorious. You know, place, places like Corinth, for example, example notorious famous for their for their sexual licentiousness very few taboos fornication was rampant and and even if he was married it was almost expected that he would have you know, a side chick or three slaves doubled as concubines adultery was just part of life and more than one historian has concluded that no other society in no other time was as sexually immoral as the Greco-Roman world in the first century when this would have been written. And I'm no expert, I'm no real historian, but I bet the United States in the 21st century it would give them a run for their money. And I'm going to assume that I don't need to convince you how relevant relevant message like this is for is for us in our in 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 our age. Paul could very easily easily be writing a letter to the church today. Indeed, Paul is writing this letter to the church today. And whether you're writing to people who have just been saved and have recently joined a church in Thessalonica or in Dansville, you're writing to people who have been catechized in a culture where almost anything goes comes to sexual activity. I say catechized from the earliest age, the air that we breathe. We imbibe all of this from from, ch from childhood, you know, from HPV vaccines to condoms in the bathrooms to unfilled phones to hookup apps. Our, our, our culture's expectation and encouragement is that you would be engaged in as much of it as you could possibly get. And if you don't believe me, just, just listen to the tone of the response when, a, say, a young adult admits their inexperience to a friend. The tone is, you're a virgin? No way! It's, it's, a, it's a note, it's a tone of utter shock, maximum disbelief. Like, how is that even possible? In these days, shame is attached to purity and double or triple body count is a, is a badge, of, badge of honor. Christians in such a context as we are are under tremendous, tremendous pressure to con our, our conduct to the to the, the culture. 
and maybe especially if your purity purity major point of opposition if this is something that school and among your peers this is what you're needled for all the, all the time this is what's you the butt of of your, your of their jokes it all has to do with your christianity and 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 how you possibly could still be a virgin and so the tempt temptation sin in this area first of all it's already super strong just thanks thanks but it's even stronger when we when when we know that the world mockery of us would stop just as suddenly as we succumbed to sexual sin. As soon as we plunged with them into, into a heap of dissipation, that's when we'd be back in and the and the mockery, the jokes would end. No doubt the, the Thessalonian believers were experiencing all of this. And given this um, context, it's very important that we would examine conduct. But it's even more important that we would examine our conduct using the right paradigm. And the paradigm that Paul puts forward is a, a quorum deo consideration of our conduct. In, in our passage today, we discover six, six components for such a Quorum Deo, consideration of our conduct. Conduct things about God and about Him and about their commands that we that we need to understand. If we are we are to conduct our lives, if we were to walk our Christian walk before His His face, we only have, we have enough time to introduce the issue to you. And I feel terrible about that, but it's just what we're up against. I, I'm going to just have to plant these thoughts in your mind and give you some fodder for stuff that you can chew on. on, on. Um, I guess I don't feel too bad about that um, because maybe the Lord will, Lord will work in that way. Consider first the divine origin of ethics, the divine origin of ethics what Paul is at pains to explain to us in the first three verses. These commands, these instructions, the, these s, these oughts do not originate with him. Yes, it's true that the Thessalonians received these things from Paul and from his associates, but the apostles were only passing them along. They're passing along what they themselves had received from higher authority. I think again about that military chain of command. That, that higher authority that we're talking about here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The risen and ruling king, king who is headed over his church. Sisters, as, as, as the one who has made us, as the, as the one who has made us, as the one who died so that we might be, for, be forgiven, one who freed from our slavery to sin, and as the one who rose again, power from the grave and from death three, three days later, so we might walk in the walk in the life, Jesus Christ has the full authority to determine how we ought to live as citizens in the kingdom, in his kingdom. Living Quorum Deo means, first of all, first of all, live under Christ's authority. 
as his subjects. That's, that, that's, that's actually what it means to live before his face. It's to live under and to recognize his full authority in these matters, in all matters. Now, a proper understanding of the divine origin really, I think, I think reflects a common notion that many people have about ethics and, and about conduct and codes of conduct. In many people's view, I think you'll agree, rules of conduct are man-made. And therefore, they're arbitrary. There's, there's simply an outworking of people's hang-ups. They're, they're a codification of people's, you know, repression, oppressions and of, of human prudishness. That's what many people would have us believe. That's the very common view. The biblical view is that God's commands are neither arbitra arbitrary nor subjective. They, they are rooted in the divine nature. nature. His, his, his commands are modification of his holy, righteous character. The that Christ gives us are reflections on, on his, uh, his prudishness, are a reflection on his, his absolute purity. The proper perspective on these things, which by God's grace the Thessalonian believers possessed, it can be found all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13. You might just glance back at that if it might, it might emose on the page or just one page before. In, in, the, in the 13, Paul is expressing his thanksgiving that when they, when they read the word of God, which they heard from the apostles, they accepted it. The passage says, not as the word of men, what it really is, the word of God. And the same name applies to ethics. Okay? It, the same thing applies to instructions about our conduct. These are to be received by us and obeyed, not as the rules of men, but as what they truly are, the commands of Christ. Paul's language is, language is very clear. He says in verse 2 of our passage that the instructions that he's given, he has given, quote, through the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, in verse 1, he's, he's asking, urging our, our, our continuement to these things and how he's asking in, in the Lord Jesus. Both of these are, are strong statements about the divi divine origin of these instructions. Why it is therefore incumbent on us that we, that we would submit as, as, as subs who are living quorum deo. Now, the obvious implication is that when a person engages in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, he or she is not just breaking some arbitrary rules established by I don't know, puritanical parents or, or, or oppressive church. No, that person is disobeying the clear commands of Christ himself. That's uh, sub-point A. I'm going to have to probably move faster than that. So sub-point B, us considering the divine ends of ethics. Nine ends of ethics. 
And that ends, that's just a fancy old-fashioned way to talk about ultimate purposes or, or goals or aims. So here we're asking, why has God commanded what he has commanded? For what purpose has he revealed to us, to us his righteousness? And Paul gives us two reasons in verse 1. The first is, so that we would know how we ought to walk. Okay, and that's great. It's wonderful, it's wonderful to realize that God has not left, left us to, to cover all of this out for ourselves, for ourselves, our own. He, you know, leaving it up to us and to society to figure out, figure out a, a social act that we can make with each other, each other to agreeing on what would be acceptable behavior. No, God has revealed these things to us. made very clear what his righteousness requires. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. So that's good, but that is not an, an ultimate end. Because we, we can still push back at that. We can still ask the why question. And that why question that we put even to that is, is answered in the reason that Paul gives in verse 1. We have been given his just rules so that we would know what pleases him. The pleasure of God, the glory of God, this is the divine end of ethics. This is what lies at the very heart of what it means to live quorum Deo. It means to live before his face, underneath the light of his countenance, under, underneath his smile, for his glory. What a way to live. That's what we've been called to. And, and, and if so, then we need to be, we need to know what, what brings about that smile, what pleases, pleases. And I trust that you understand, understand that when we're talking about conduct that is pleasing, pleasing to God, we're not talking at all, all, about that we can do to kind of curry his favor and, and earn some earn some kind of stay for him. I hope I hope you realize that that is an impossibility. No one can do that. That all, all of the, the favor that I have before God has been earned by the by the Christ on my behalf. I have an eternal standing with God for, for no other reason than that I am standing in His beloved Son. In whom he is well pleased. But at stand in Christ with, with sins forgiven, having received a new heart, new heart, a new nature, with, with the indwelling spirit, all of those promises that, that Gledon read um, for us about in, in Ezekiel. We, we experience that now and and and, and so I can, I'm freed up now to, to live a life that pleases the Lord. My, my conduct and yours either brings him pleasure or brings him grief. And the aim of Coram Deo is to conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to Christ. That might seem like a very basic point to make. But if we were to really put that into practice, it would 
it would call for a radical change change of our what can what is my my orientation what is yours it's to please ourselves what is the main main driver of sin especially what's in view here here sexual sin what is the main driver of that that it's our own pleasure and so I, I, want to, I want you to seriously consider how you, you act with your girlfriend or how you use your phone or how you use your body. I want you to just imagine with me how those things might change and change, change rather drastically if you were honestly pursuing the pleasure instead of your own. A third uh, component in a quorum deo examination of our conduct has to do with divine knowledge. Divine knowledge. We could say there are two types of people in the world. Um, who don't know God and people who are known by God. You can always divide up the world into two groups of people, but, but I think this is a particular helpful way to divide them up um, for this point. People either don't know God or people are known by God. Now, of course, in some sense, God knows everybody. Who, who is not known in that strict sense by God? He's omniscient. He knows everything. But more often than not, not across that word, that idea, knowledge, in the Bible, it has to do not, to do not with mere head knowledge and inform, information. It has with intimacy. And so to be known by God, God is to be loved by God and to be call, called according to his purpose. Paul will, Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, a very favorite and famous part of, of uh, scripture, that those whom, those whom God foreknew, and by foreknow he means for loved, those whom God foreknew he called and those he called he sanctified and so on. And Paul, I think, is alluding to the same idea in verse of our passage, which actually is a really great transition verse for our purpose, because it begins by talking about the will of God, which is very much is very much to God's pleasure. When we're talking about the, the will of God, talking about that which God is pleases Him, that which He He is doing for His own glory. And what, and what is God pursuing for his own glory? Look at the text. Your sanctification. So that while you're pursuing his pleasure, he is pursuing your holiness. That, that's an amazing thing on the face of it. And we'll, we'll talk about our holiness more in just a few minutes. But first, let's just come straightway to what Paul believes our sanctification requires in the present present moment. What does holiness require right now? It's this. To abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body in honor and holiness. That's, that's the will of God. That's what your sanctification Need be about in this moment. 
abstaining from sexual immorality, and knowing, knowing how to your own body in holiness and in honor. Sexual immorality. That's a word that you encounter over and over in Scripture. You might get the, the impression, and it would be a right one, that, that this very common problem for people to fall into, fall into, and it's very important we consider our the state of our soul. Our soul, um, contrary to what you might hear from from even other wonderful preachers, the Bible does not whisper about sexual sin. The Bible is very loud and very clear of this pitfall, and the term itself, when we encounter this term often in scripture, um, the word in the original language is porneia. And that's a word from which we get our word pornography. It's, it, it's a general term that kind of encompasses all forms of illicit behaviors along, along these lines, from fornication to adultery to homosexuality, and yes, to the use of pornography, as well as everything that comes in between. And that comes to us in regards to all this is mean. We're not, we're not to engage in of it. It's out of bounds. There, there's a post posted sign on it. Paul's advice elsewhere is to, to run away from it as, as fast as far as you can. Um, there, there are, I think, are flashbacks to, to that Joseph um, and Potiphar's wife. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, there he says, flee sexual immorality. And I think he must have in mind the kind of fleeing that leaves your, your garment behind if necessary. In verse 4 of our passage, Paul is going to spell out what this looks like, both positively and negatively. Look, look at the text with me. So positively... Abstaining from sexual morality means controlling our own body, our bodies in holiness and honor. And this is another one of these uh, tricky verses and phrases to translate. And different um, scholars, different translators really struggle over, the, actually it's just two words that cause all of the confusion, a, a, a noun and a verb. And the noun is a word that literally means vessel. If you have an older translation, maybe they don't even translate it, but they say vessel. And uh, so what does a vessel refer to? Some say it refers to a wife. Some say that it refers to uh, uh, your body. Still others, others argue more specific than that and, and, and refers in a mystic way to a body part. And if, and if you can settle on those, then, then the difficulty is compounded when you add the verb. Okay, so the verb, verb does, does the verb mean acquire or, or, or control? And so individually it's difficult, and then it compounded the translation issue when you put these together. Does it mean acquire, possess your own wife? Does it mean acquire your your own body it's very difficult 
and um, I don't really have the final, an final answer on it. Um, chances are that you have before you in your English tra translations one of these, one of these two. Uh, it, it says, uh, it might say, let each of you possess his own life. Or you might have a translation that says, let each of you control your body. So again, the chances hopefully are good that you have one of, one of those options. Those seem to be the most common ones that translators have settled on. If, if Paul is indeed talking about having your own wife, then that's actually uh, helpful. That's a good reminder that the command that we're receiving here is not a command against sex in general, but against six, six, sexual in, in particular. You'll remember, of course, that um, from our study in Genesis, that sex is God's idea. It's part of his creation that he declared was very good, very good. It was a crucial component of his good gift marriage where he brought, he brought to the man and they were naked, naked and were not ashamed. It was a beautiful thing. Hebrews 13 verse 4, 4 says that marriage is to be held, held in awe among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. There, there's a beauty and a goodness and a, and a truth to to when it's in its original context, its design. So there's that. If, if your translation says that, that's a helpful reminder. But in, in my opinion, controlling one's own body, body parts, is the better translation. And the reason that I lean, toward, lean towards that makes better sense of this next part, where Paul is going to give us a negative example. Look at verse 5. He says, not, so there, now he's going to, the, the other side of the coin, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles. So here he's talking about unbelievers who don't have, have their vessels, their members under control. They, they have, their, their passions and their lusts just have free reign. Their rule is whatever, however, whenever, and with whomever. It's, it's out of control. This is exactly what I expect from people who do not know God. Do you see that at the end of verse 5? These are people who are not living Cormdeo. Rather, living as if there is no God. They're li they are gods themselves, themselves and just do whatever they fa fancy. And I want you to understand that this is not merely an ignorance about God. Like no, no one's never ever, ever told them about div divinity. It's, it's not that. We're, ta we're talking here about willful ignorance. We're, we're talking about the kind of thing that Paul, talk Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, where, where he says that although mankind knew God, they rejected him. And they exchanged the truth about God and about his world for a lie. That's a willful sort of exchange. And so God gave them over to engage in whatever their, their evil, evil heart conceive of, including all manner of sexual deviancy. Friends, I don't know if this is going to be a shock to you. I hope it's not. I hope you understand that we are living in a Romans 1 world. We're in a period where people have given up the knowledge of God so that, that God given them up 
to do what ought not to be done. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised when, when we see our country celebrating perversion for a whole month. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when we see people glorying in their shame. We, we should be sad. We should be, we should be morally out. We should have a righteous sort of indignation. We should weep. But don't be surprised. Don't let that rock your world. And everything's out of control. That's exactly the type of thing that you should that you should from a people, from a country that doesn't God. But the point is, the point is you're, not, you're not that well. You do know God. Rather better are known by God. And he's shown you what is good, what is and he has shown you what he requires you. And what he desires of you is your holiness. And what our holiness requires is that our bodies and our passions be under control. A fourth consideration in our examination of our conduct has to do with divine vengeance. The term Deo not only describes a God who is authoritative, it describes one who sees everything. It describes one for whom nothing is hidden from his sight. Furthermore, this is a God with whom we have to do. We are accountable to him for our conduct. This is the truth. This is Paul brings forward in verse 6, where we are exhorted as follows. He says, Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now that word transgress, transgress that's one of, the, one, of the, one of the aspects of, uh, it's a word that we, enc- we encounter often in scripture, and it, br- and it brings to light that act of sin that the idea is crossing a boundary or going beyond a fixed point, a set point. And our own language, I think, invokes this, this idea when we say things like, I went too far with my boyfriend. boyfriend. What, what's, what's going on with sexual sin is at least two things. On, on the one hand, you've transgressed a moral boundary, one that Christ himself has established. We've talked about that. But the side is that sexual sin represents a wrong against us. Now, this is obviously the case with sexual abuse and assault. And statistics alone just indicate that there are many people even here today who have, who have been sentenced grievously in this area. You've been victimized. You, you've been hurt in, in most cases by someone that you knew and trusted. And no doubt you, you carry those wounds to the day. And, and today, if you're, if you're in that place, if that describes you today, I just want you to, to know, I want you to be assured of, of the love of, of God's people. I, I want you to really know that there's compassion and understanding among the people of God. Many, many who have been in the same sort of, sort of situation. And if you are here today who, who 
someone as presently enduring enduring i i want to urge you to to let one know about that so that the wrong that it is being done to you right you right now can can be to light and so that, so that you can to receive healing from from that terrible sin we 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 should expect we should expect that in a world that is given over to these sorts of sexual perversions and immorality uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised when, when it leaves in its wake just utter devastation and we want to be we want to be a people who are are a, a place of refuge for people that people that hurt and and devastated by by sin and the sin of the sin of others and, and if you're in that boat today, I want you to know even more importantly, I want to offer you the consolation of Christ, which is in part this. Look at verse six. six. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. I want to assure you that the Lord sees and knows and he's not turned blind eye. And he will most certainly execute vengeance on every abuser. But notice that Paul doesn't single out abusers. This applies to abusers, that's for sure. But he's not making that specific, not narrowing things down to, to only. And you, you know this, that in scripture sometimes there's certain scriptures that talk about the fact that sexual sin is only and primarily a sin against god right you know you know david's confession in 51 where he declares that that he understands the the ugliness of ugliness of his such a degree that he can say against you you only have i sinned and we we understand what he's saying and then uh, we, we can understand uh, maybe a different aspect of sexual sin. sin. Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says that this sin is kind of, kind of in the sense that this is a sin that, is, that you commit against your own, your own body. So in that case, he's highlighting like the, 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 the personal damage that you do to yourself and to your soul when you in this kind of behavior. But I, I want you to notice that, that in our church today, he's highlighting a third aspect of, sin, of sexual sin, is the wrong that it does to your fellow man, regardless of consent. Do you see that? He's not drilling down and only talking about situations in which there's no, no consent. He doesn't you know, give a, a carte blanche to, to anything that happens between consenting adults. No, if you engage in sexual immorality, you are harming, harming fellow man. Even if it looks like, looks like it's just, there's no problem. E problem. Even if it's your fiance, or, e or even if he's your friend with benefits and you have an, a, a sort of agreement, you are, are sinning against them in a gri grievous way, in a damaging way. And, and Paul says, you give an account for sin to the Lord, who is an avenger of evil. And 
I don't want you to, to get out from underneath the weight of that solemn warning, as Paul puts it. Don't get out of that with your theology. You know, this is, this is kind of, this is the third time that we've encountered something like this, where Paul's statement where we could very easily, given our theology, which we believe we believe is his, we could say, well, actually, Paul, um, Christians will never have to face the vengeance of Christ. Are are people that have been forgiven and hidden in Christ? There's no there's no there's no wrath left for me to bear. And what do you say to that? Well, you say. That's completely missing the point. Do you think Paul doesn't know that? I, I think what, what you need to do in this moment is just feel the weight of this reality, reality that you are in a grievous way and that that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The Lord is so serious about these matters that he's an avenger. I, I hope, I hope you'll, you'll just be happy with with the paradox in your mind because the, the paradox exists because in some ways is who's at the end of the end of the day if you're a christian and if that theological thing you out of it because if you continue your sexual immorality morality you're, you're actually giving indication that you haven't been born of god that you are still in your sins. So feel the weight of this solemn warning that Paul has given to these people. And don't, don't wiggle it using theology. That's, that's compounding our, our sin to do that. Get, stay with me, please. Uh, a few more minutes. I want to point to you. We're doing great with this Coram Deo analysis of our conduct and part of that in the fifth place is to consider the divine gift verses seven and eight says for god has not called us to impurity but in holiness therefore whoever disregards disregards not man but god who gives his holy spirit to you and so we circle back again to this beautiful reality that God is all about, all about our vocation. His desire, his aim, all of his work is, is all of his resources, if we could put it that way, are, are funneled and are channeled into having us, having us conform to the image of Christ. Rooting out, rooting out sin in our lives, placing it with, with holy, holy living. And here, here, here's how you know that God is interested in your holiness. He's so, so interested in your holiness that he actually has given you the th third person of the Trinity to, to dwell inside of you. The, the Holy Spirit of God, he has given to you. Given to you. Talk about living quorum deo. Talk, talk about living before God and, and bef in the presence of God. Yeah, in the presence. He's in your person. And what a beautiful blessing that, again, the, the passage that we read in Ezekiel, where this amazing gift is promised, and others like it in Jeremiah chapter 1, to, 
it's, it's mind-boggling to know that God himself is going to take up residence in the person of the, the, tr- uh, the Holy Spirit within us to write the law on our hearts, to, to help us fight sin in, in the moment and with power. What a gift. And then consider negatively what you, if you and I were to engage in any kind of sexual immorality, consider what we're doing to that gift. We're just, we're just spurning that gift. We're totally disregarding that gift, that gift. He's given us a gift for our holiness, and we're saying, no, I don't want holiness. I want her, her. I want that. that, that. And then when you consider that gift is a pers- person, and that gift is God himself, you're not, if you were to just ignore everything that I'm saying, saying you, you're ignoring God himself. That, that puts us in a terribly imperiled condition. Consider that as you consider sin. Consider that your actions would so grieve the Holy Spirit who is within you, who's been given to you so that you can run from that sin. You could abstain from sexual immorality. Lean in, friends, to, to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then consider, finally, finally, divine instruction. Again, this, again, this is the full promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel, Jeremiah 31, where God promises the Holy Spirit. And, and he, says, he says in that, there, there's not going to be a need for one man to say to another, know the Lord. Because the Lord himself is going to instruct us in these matters and do you see where this is kind of fleshed out in in verses 9 and following paul says now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by god love one another you want to talk about a powerful consideration of our conduct it's to know that god himself is instructing us directly how we ought to live. It's amazing to me this time of year to watch deer fawns, to watch to watch birth their their little hatchlings and and you know to, it's it's unbelievable to me how they know the right time, time just instinctively the right time to, to kick them a nest or or whatever. There's so much that we we put we put down to nature, but we understand that God Himself somehow is caring for His creation. And, and teaching them kind of directly somehow everything that they need to know for their life and for their survival. But if that's the case, how, how much more significant and beautiful is it that God himself teaches us his Holy Spirit and then teaches us directly about, about what it is to love one another. And you get to see some of this in, in action because when you see a new believer— when you interact with a new believer and, and, you, and you see them loving the people of God and loving others, you, you think, to you, how did, they, you've only been walking with the Lord for like a week. How do you know how, how to do that stuff? And that's just a beautiful testimony that God himself is all about teaching us to love and to love one another. And this is part of 
the blessing of having the Holy Spirit residing in us. And so this, this is uh, an important consideration for, for ethics, isn't it? This isn't a body of knowledge to, to learn that's kind of out there. This is something that God himself te- is, is pleased to teach us and instruct us and lead us into. And so, so honest, our holiness requires that we would, we would walk in. Now, we're out of time. I want to just leave you with that second point, which I promised would be, be brief and also my promise. Cucked, encouraged, and exhorted. I hope you can get the sense through this passage that Paul is actually, Paul is actually yes, he's exhorting them in very strong, with very strong exhortations, but he's also super encouraged when he knows himself and when he hears reports that the stuff that he's he's already entered them they're actually doing that they're living he says this in verse one we ask we urge you in the lord jesus lord jesus that see from us how you ought to walk and to please god just as you're doing you're doing it and then again um, he, at the end, he says, we, you're do, doing this, and it's wonderful. Verse 10, you, this is what you're doing for, for all of those in Macedonia. You are exercising, you are displaying your love for the brothers and serving them in so many ways. But here's the exhortation. What you're doing, abstaining from sexual immorality, loving the brothers, Working, working with your hands, quiet and godly life, minding your own P's and Q's, showing forth the, the calmness and the contentedness of, of what it means to live under the pleasure of God, under his, his smile or his face. You're doing, doing that. Brothers and sisters, do it. Do it more. Don't, don't grow sad in the status quo. He's calling you to holiness. Let's go deeper. In, hol- in holiness not be content to just not, not you know cross certain line of righteousness let's let's be de- determined together to 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 hard and fast and far into righteous and holiness what a testimony this would be to outsiders it wouldn't take much of doing that i think you'd agree in this, in this culture, people would sit up and take notice. And that it might be very attractive to them. And that they might see the attractiveness and the beauty of the Savior. Friends, brothers and sisters, stick together. Let's live. And let's conduct ourselves. Coram Deo. For his